Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast about the guidance released by the U.S. Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, Part 2, Practical Strategies for Protecting Kids and Changing Systems, with Matthew Cohen. Today's webcast is part of Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD's Ask the Expert series. The NRC is funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable, science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Matthew Cohen. Matt Cohen is well known for his work in special education law and has extensive experience in healthcare and mental health law. He has represented hundreds of children with disabilities in special education disputes and has been involved in cases throughout multiple states in the U.S. Now, as a past president of CHAD, where he continues to serve as a member of the Public Policy Committee. He's also on the Public Policy Committee of the Learning Disability Association of America and is the longtime chair of the Illinois Attorney General's Advisory Committee on Special Education. Again, we are pleased to welcome our guest expert today, Matt Cohen. I'm very pleased to be able to present today to everyone and look forward to being able to provide what I hope will be very useful information to everyone about the application of Section 504 to the rights of children with ADHD. The reason for this presentation and the one that was done a few weeks ago by Paul Grossman who was formerly uh, a senior lawyer with the Office for Civil Rights, is that in July, the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights issued a Dear Colleague letter, which is a letter to state education departments and school districts all over the United States that explained uh, both existing rules in relation to how Section 504 applies to kids with ADHD and, in some respects, expanded the understanding of how these rules apply to kids with ADHD. The Dear Colleague letter is not the same as a law. It's not the same as a regulation in that it's not actually binding on school districts. So it's important for people to be aware that what we're going to be talking about is not quite the same thing as something that's in the law itself. On the other hand, school districts are supposed to pay attention to the interpretation of the 504 regulations by the Office for Civil Rights because they're the agency that has responsibility for interpreting it. And importantly, if you're not able to work things out uh, with the office for, uh, with the school district that you're having some problems with, uh, and you had to ultimately go to court, uh, the first step would be a complaint to the Office for Civil Rights, and they would be applying their understanding of how 504 affects kids with ADHD in their response. So, Ultimately, even though it's not part of the law, it would affect their interpretation in a particular case. And if you had to go to court in a lawsuit over a 504 issue, the courts would give some deference to the interpretation that the Office for Civil Rights has provided in this letter. What I'm going to be doing this afternoon, I'm going to be trying to do it relatively quickly, but it seems to me that in order to have a, a full understanding of how the Dear Colleague letter works and its significance for kids with ADHD, it's really important to understand how 504 itself works. And in order to really understand how 504 works, it's important to also have an understanding of how the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act and Section 504 interact and how they're the same and how they're different. 
because many kids with ADHD uh, can qualify for services under the special education statute, IDEA, uh, while many others qualify under Section 504 and some may not qualify for protection under either law. Uh, the reason that this, is, uh, this clarification or Dear Colleague letter was issued was because the U.S. Department of Education realized that there are lots and lots of kids who are being identified uh, under Section 504 because of ADHD. In fact, the Dear Colleague letter identifies that one in nine of the complaints they get for any issue at the Office for Civil Rights is related to kids with ADHD who are having a problem under Section 504. The other thing that they recognize is that there are a lot of kids who should be protected under either the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or Section 504 who are actually not getting protected at all and not getting any help or service uh, due to their ADHD because the school district, for one reason or another, is not recognizing them under either law. They also recognize that there are many kids who have been identified as eligible for a 504 plan, but the 504 plan is not really doing all the things that it should be doing in meeting their needs. Importantly, because the Chad Public Policy Committee was aware that there were lots of problems for kids with ADHD in relation to how they were being protected or not protected by the schools, we also did a study over the last several years, a questionnaire that we sent out to CHAD members soliciting information about how 504 was working, received hundreds of responses that were collated and analyzed and shared with the U.S. Office for Civil, Department of Education Office for Civil Rights. So we're very pleased that they took our feedback. They also, we met with them multiple times in the process of their developing the Dear Colleague letter and we were very pleased that they issued a very strong letter in response, which we hope will help families to uh, advocate on behalf of their kids with ADHD. And similarly, we hope will help educators within schools to advocate and ensure that kids with ADHD are being appropriately recognized, whether under IDEA or under Section 504. The first thing to understand is that the IDEA is a funding statute. It actually provides, the federal government provides direct money to states and to school districts to pay for a part, not all, but a part of special education services. And because all school districts are getting that funding, in effect, there's a contract, a contract by virtue of the statute that says, if you take IDEA money, then you have to follow the IDEA rules. And all of the school districts in the state are taking that money, and so they're all governed by section by uh, the IDEA. <coughs> Section 504 is a very different type of law. It's a civil rights statute that says that it's illegal uh, to discriminate on the basis of disability in any uh, program or activity which receives federal financial assistance. It doesn't have to be federal financial assistance for special education. It could be federal financial assistance uh, for the football team. But if they're receiving federal financial assistance, then the school is governed by Section 504. And currently, all public schools in the United States, as well as some private schools, and that gets a little complicated, but all public schools in the United States receive federal financial assistance, so all of them are governed by Section 504. The key difference is right now uh, that public schools around the country are experiencing financial uh, difficulties. They're cutting back on their budgets. Their special education budgets are being reduced. As a result, if anything, there may be more pressure for kids to be made eligible under Section 504 uh, because there's a perception that services under 504 are less expensive. Um, that's 
a, a great myth, but in fact, kids, as you'll find as we talk today, may be able to get very similar services under 504 as they do under an IEP. So in reality, uh, it, it shouldn't be uh, an economic justification for using 504. Rather, it should be based on what the kids need. As I indicated, all states are now accepting federal financial assistance, so they're all covered by the IDEA. Similarly, all school districts are receiving uh, federal funding, so they're also covered by Section 504. Uh, in order to be eligible, let me, let me say as an aside, by the way, that private schools that receive federal money are covered by Section 504. Private schools that do not receive federal money are still covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act unless the school is a parochial school and is religiously controlled. If it's a parochial school and religiously controlled and does not receive federal money, unfortunately, neither of these laws, none of these laws apply to them. So then the important question is, how are kids determined to be eligible for protection under either the IDEA or Section 504? Under the IDEA, there are 13 categories of disability. A student must be found eligible under at least one of those categories in order to qualify for special education. By contrast, under Section 504, there are no categories. All that's necessary is that a student has an identified or diagnosed physical or mental disability in order to satisfy the criteria, or at least the first criterion for eligibility, that is that you have a disability. But there's no uh, category of labeling a learning disability or an emotional disorder or a health impairment, whatever. All that's needed is a physical or mental disability. Uh, under the IDEA rules, until 1997, ADHD wasn't recognized as a specific disability under the categories of uh, the IDEA, but in 1997, ADHD was expressly added to the regulations uh, for other health impaired, and Tourette syndrome was added to the definition of other health impaired in 2006. In order for a kid with ADHD to be considered as having a health impairment, they have to demonstrate limited strength, vitality, or alertness, including limited alertness to educational tasks due to heightened sensitivity to environmental stimuli. That's a mouthful. It's actually language that I helped to work on way back uh, when the U.S. Department of Education was first thinking about adding ADHD, the other health impaired category, but basically it includes attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder with the idea that you may be uh, overly engaged in other things and as a result are not sufficiently alert to educational tasks. So that's a little different than some of the other disabilities that are listed, but clearly ADHD and Tourette syndrome are recognized. ADHD is also recognized by the Office of Civil Rights as a disability which can qualify for coverage under Section 504. The same is true for Tourette syndrome, uh, but as I mentioned a moment ago, because there are no explicit categories you don't need to have a list of different conditions in order for a condition to be qualified. It's enough that it's a physical or health impairment that's been diagnosed. And then, under ADHD, here's the more specific language of the law. Uh, chronic or acute health conditions such as asthma, diabetes, sickle cell anemia, ADHD, results in limited strength or alertness, uh, limited strength, vitality, or alertness, including limited alertness to educational tasks and adversely affects educational performance. That's out of the regulation. Uh, this is what often happens to kids with ADHD. Uh, it, it, the uh, cartoon there reads, if you aren't able to read it, after a hasty special education placement for behavioral problems, school officials were embarrassed to learn that Marty really did have ants in his pants. Uh, 
the process of determining what the nature of the child's disability is, how it fits within both laws, is a complicated one, but a very important one. And it's important to recognize that uh, you understand who the child is and what's affecting them in order to decide the right protection that they're entitled to receive. In addition to the other health-impaired category, kids with ADHD are sometimes uh, labeled under the emotional disorder category, uh, which requires that the condition be there for a long period to a marked degree and adversely affect performance, or under the learning disabilities category. Now, it's important to know that kids with ADHD may also have a learning disability or may also have emotional problems, but if the ADHD is really their primary problem and they're being considered for special education, they should be considered under the other health impaired category rather than one of the other categories. All eligibility categories under IDEA require that the eligibility uh, leads to, the condition leads to an adverse effect on educational performance and the requirement that the child needs special education intervention. And we'll talk about that in comparison to 504 in just a minute. But the key thing about the adverse effect on educational performance is it doesn't have to be just on academics. It's on any element of the child's functioning at school. And the key thing under uh, special education is that it doesn't have to be in a special education classroom. But again, we'll come back to that. So under uh, the IDEA, you have to have an adverse effect on educational performance. Under 504, it's enough that the student's disability substantially limit a major life activity, such as learning, working, or caring for oneself. If the student has any major life activity impacted, they may be entitled to the protection of Section 504. Then, this is very important, the, the most significant criterion that separates kids who are made eligible for special ed and those made eligible for 504 is what do they need? Under special ed, under the IDEA, in order to qualify for special education, the student must need some form of special education instruction. This does not mean it has to be in a self-contained or pull-out classroom, but it does require at least some specialized assistance or instruction within the regular classroom. It's not enough to qualify for a special ed eligibility or an IEP if all you need is accommodation or related services. By contrast, and as I mentioned, this is huge in terms of the differences. Under Section 504, a student may qualify for 504 protection if they need special education or related services or accommodations. 504 does not require the student to need special ed in order to qualify. For example, if a student requires preferential seating because of their ADHD or a quiet room to take tests or extended time on tests, or a positive reinforcement system, they may be entitled to a 504 plan to make sure that they receive it. And significantly for kids with ADHD who require medication, a student might need a school nurse or an administrator to help them with taking meds. They do not need instructional support, but just the fact that they need adult help with their medication would be enough to qualify them for a Section 504 plan because it does not require instruction. So the key word there is that under IDEA, you need special ed, under 504, you need special ed or related services or accommodations. One of the big things that's misunderstood about 504 is that it doesn't provide any standard for what type of education you receive. Under the IDEA, many people are aware that the standard is that the student is entitled to receive a free appropriate public education, which is based on the IEP and includes special education and related services which are necessary for a child to benefit from education. That's like the standard that addresses the quality 
or the type of program that the student receives. Because many people are under the mistaken impression that under 504, all you qualify for is accommodations, there is an assumption that it doesn't really relate to how you function as a student in school, but only how you access the teaching. And in fact, that's not accurate. Under Section 504, the regulations also require that the student be provided a free, appropriate public education. But the standard there is really more around whether the, the program allows the child to meet their needs as adequately if the need, as the needs of students without disabilities are met. So there's still a requirement of a free, appropriate education, but it's a little bit more vague and, and a little bit more tied to how the student accesses the education as opposed to the progress that they're able to make within the education. Uh, maybe that's an important point to make is that the IDEA, the special ed law, is tied to progress, whereas 504 is more tied to access. Both laws also require that kids with disabilities who are protected by the laws are educated in the least restrictive environment. Under neither law does that mean automatically and always in regular ed. Both of them provide that the student should be educated in the least restrictive environment appropriate to meet their needs, but the criteria or rules under IDEA are more specific than they are under 504. But note that the language of the two paragraphs on the left, the first paragraph on the left and the first paragraph under 504 on the right, the only paragraph, those are almost verbatim the same. The basic legal standard is that the child be educated to the maximum extent appropriate with children who do not have disabilities and be removed from regular education only if and to the extent that supplementary aids and services, uh, without, with the sub use of supplementary aids and services, the child cannot be educated satisfactorily in regular education. Essentially what this means under both laws is that you have to see, is there a way to meet the child's needs in regular education with help? And if there is, that's where they should be. And you only look to moving them to a more restrictive setting if they can't be effectively educated within the less restrictive setting. But again, despite the reputation or rumor that 504 is an accommodations only law, there are standards relating to programming and support that relate to kids with disabilities under 504 that many people aren't aware are present. Significant additional difference for kids with IDEA eligibility versus 504, both of them require that if there's going to be a suspension for more than 10 days or an expulsion, that the uh, school district must look at whether the child's disability caused the behavior, I'm sorry, whether the disability caused the behavior or was a manifestation of the disability in order to decide whether they are entitled to be or should be suspended for more than 10 days or expelled, or whether they should be kept in school. Both IDEA and 504 require something called a manifestation review meeting to consider whether the behavior is related to disability or not, but the rules under 504 for making those decisions uh, are more specific, uh, I'm sorry, are more general than they are under IDEA. So there's more protection under IDEA, but there is some protection for kids with behavioral problems under 504 as well. So that's a very, very quick overview of some of the similarities and differences between the two laws. Uh, it would be safe to say as a general matter that every kid with a disability who is eligible for, section, for IDEA protection is by definition eligible for 504 protection because the 504 criteria are broader, but not the other way around. If you are eligible under 504, you may or may not be eligible under IDEA. <coughs> That's where the Dear Colleague letter becomes important because the Dear Colleague letter 
One of the most important things about the Dear Colleague letter is that it has substantially expanded the scope of uh, both who is eligible for 504 protection and how the determination is made about whether the student is eligible. So this really gives uh, much more clarity and more uh, ammunition for parents and educators to use to get kids the protection and help that they need under 504. So I'm going to go through essentially what I regard as the top 13 uh, messages of the Dear Colleague letter. I encourage everyone to read the Dear Colleague letter. It's very, very detailed, has lots and lots of information, including information about uh, ways that the uh, students with ADHD can have assistance from the school, whether from the form of accommodation, support services, counseling, assistance with learning how to do executive functioning. Uh, environmental modifications, reward systems, and so on. So there are many, many strategies that are described in the Dear Colleague letter that are important for parents and educators to be aware of that might be helpful for kids in a particular situation. The first thing that's uh, important, this is not new in the Dear Colleague letter, but that's nonetheless uh, emphasized in the Dear Colleague letter, is that districts are required to appropriately and timely evaluate and identify students suspected of having ADHD. Sadly, many kids with ADHD continue to be missed by schools, whether for special ed or for 504 protection. And one of the reasons that they're missed is because some people just don't take ADHD seriously still. And another reason that they're sometimes missed is that the schools perceive that they don't have the people trained uh, to conduct evaluations for ADHD and they don't want to pay for outside evaluations for ADHD. So it is a significant problem nationally that kids with ADHD are not being appropriately and timely evaluated to determine if they have ADHD. Uh, once a kid is referred for evaluation for a special ed eligibility and for an IEP, parents should also be aware that even if they're determined not eligible for an IEP, the school should still consider whether they're eligible for a 504 plan because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you can be eligible for a 504 plan even when you don't qualify for an IEP because the criteria for eligibility are much broader. Unfortunately, schools don't always make that connection to automatically think about 504 also, and parents and educators, if a kid's being considered for an IEP, make sure, if they're determined not eligible, that the school is reviewing whether they are eligible for a 504 plan instead. Second thing is that if there is a determination that the child is eligible, the student is entitled to receive appropriate accommodations, and I put it in capital letters, services at no cost to the family. The district must document and provide the appropriate placement and services, regardless of cost. That can include accommodations like preferential seating, untimed tests, testing in a quiet room. It can include support on executive functioning. It can include help with organizing time. It can include help with organizing books or papers to make sure that a student is able to keep track of their assignments. It can include instruction and it can include related services such as counseling or social work services. Whatever those services are, they're supposed to be provided at no cost to the parent and go beyond just accommodations. The other thing that's important is that for the purposes of determining eligibility, if there are different things required as part of an evaluation to determine whether the child's eligible for 504, the evaluation process is also supposed to be at no cost to the parent. So if the school district makes a suggestion that the child be evaluated by a doctor or by a psychologist or whatever, 
that parent has the option of saying, yes, we want it to be done, but we can't pay for it or don't want to pay for it, and the school should pay for it. So that's very important as well. Then uh, there is a, a rule that school districts used for many years and others in interpreting 504 and the ADA that basically said that if a child or an adult with a disability uses what are called mitigating measures to help to neutralize the effects of the disability in order to allow them to function, and they were then able to function adequately, then the person did not have a disability. An example of that would be if a child with ADHD takes medication, and with the medication they're appropriately behaved, not excessively hyperactive or distractible, and they're able to manage, then the school district could have said, well, with the meds they're fine, and so the meds are lasting while they're in school, so they don't have a disability. The Dear Colleague letter, based on interpretation of 504 and amendments to the Americans with Disabilities Act, says that mitigating measures such as medication, extra tutoring, or unusual effort are not a basis for exclusion. You're not allowed to take the mitigating measure into account. You have to assess how the person functions without the benefit of the mitigating measure to determine whether they have a disability that substantially limits one or more major life activities. The other thing that the Dear Colleague letter did that was really a big change uh, is that they said that things like the parent providing hours a night of extra homework support or the student spending hours a night on homework beyond what a typical student would spend on a regular basis, those could be regarded as mitigating measures. And so the student who appears to be doing well in school because they're getting their homework done and they're getting grades that are appropriate on their homework and they're doing well on tests, the school might say on the surface that student does not have a disability because they may be making extra effort, but they're doing fine when they're actually being evaluated. That would be a scenario where there could be a, a very legitimate argument that the mitigating measures of the unusual effort by parent or student or both have to be taken into account. And without that extra effort, the student would not be able to succeed, and therefore there would be substantial limitation, and they should be eligible for the protection of the law. And that's very important because among the many mitigating, uh, I'm sorry, the many accommodations that a student could receive would be a reduction of work or chunking of work or modifications of deadlines and the allowance of extra time for work that would make life easier for the student and allow them to have a more normal life. Uh, as I mentioned, ineligibility under the IDEA does not equal ineligibility under the 504 uh, criteria. You can be 504 eligible even if the school determines that you're not eligible under IDEA. And if there's a reason for referral under IDEA, uh, there ought to be consideration of 504 eligibility if the decision is no under special education. Uh, then this is a really, really big shift in the approach to all of this. The 504 and ADA regulations and the Dear Colleague letter now make clear that when there is a clinical diagnosis of ADHD by an appropriate clinical provider, there is a presumption that the student has a disability for the purposes of 504 eligibility, and there's a presumption of substantial limitation of major life activity. In other words, instead of the burden being on the student and family to prove that it is causing a problem, the burden is on the school to prove that there isn't a substantial limitation. And what it really says is that barring unusual circumstances, the school should acknowledge that it's a disability that substantially limits and provide eligibility. So this is really a dramatic change in, in how the law is applied. And it actually makes sense 
it makes clear that clinical evaluation that's appropriate is really important. Uh, some people may be aware, but not all, that to be clinically diagnosed with ADHD, there's supposed to be evidence of impairment in multiple settings over time, particularly the two most important settings are at home and at school, and a good diagnosis shouldn't just rely on the parent's word for it, it should also include feedback from the school staff to support that the problem is showing up at school as well. If that type of evaluation is done and it supports that the child is struggling at school, then it makes sense, actually, that this should be a presumption because there's already documentation from the school showing the impact when the diagnosis itself was made. So this is very logical, but with or without that particular analysis, the Dear Colleague letter makes clear that the diagnosis should create a presumption of disability. Another important change is that many kids with ADHD are gifted or are high academic performers despite the fact that they may struggle in other ways or have to perform uh, heroically in terms of uh, time spent studying and doing homework. And the Dear Colleague letter now emphasizes that uh, high academic performance, passing grades, academic success, or giftedness does not automatically exclude a student from eligibility for Section 504 protections. You can still look at the child's behavior, their social functioning, their academic struggles, the amount of time and effort that they have to spend in order to complete the work that's being expected and get the grades that they're getting, and this sort of links up with the mitigating measures point, but the key thing is that many kids uh, with ADHD who are bright or, or highly successful in some ways are presumed not to have a disability by the school, and all of these things now shift the discussion altogether and create a presumption that they do have a disability and that these uh, types of uh, characteristics do not rule them out from the protection of the law. Notably, the uh, Dear Colleague letter does expressly address the uh, executive functioning difficulties and social and behavioral difficulties that kids with ADHD have, even when they're non-academic. Uh, sometimes when they are academic, but also when they're not academic, it includes things like time management, getting your books at home and to school, having the papers at the right place, but it also includes things like emotional regulation, social skills, uh, whether the student is socially isolated or not. Uh, they may be a student who, uh, by virtue of their disability, is subject to scapegoating or being ostracized by their peers and wanting to be socially involved but having difficulty doing so, despite the fact that they're not necessarily having academic problems as reflected in grades, these conditions or characteristics of ADHD can also be a basis for uh, coverage and can be a basis for intervention from the school in the form of both services and accommodations, so that's very important. Another, I think, really significant uh, point of discussion in the Dear Colleague letter, uh, it's most uh, more common that kids who are hyperactive or impulsive are the ones who are more likely to be identified as having a problem that warrants their consideration uh, for 504 eligibility. Kids who are inattentive, distractible, but not a behavior problem, they're not disruptive, they're not calling out, they're not throwing spitballs, they're not getting up and running around the room, they're just in their own world or dreaming or staring off into space or reading a book but not turning the page or all of the other things that may be typical of kids with ADHD, those kids also may be subject to protection as long as that distractibility is uh, interfering with 
some major life activity, which undoubtedly it is because that would involve thinking and learning. Uh, and on the other side of the equation, many of you have probably heard schools say to parents, ah, we don't think that your kid really has a disability because they're able to pay attention really well some of the time. Just look at how they do when they're playing video games. They can stop and watch video games for hours. Uh, now, I think clinically understood that kids with ADHD often have hyper focus on high stimulation or preferred tasks where they may have uh, clinically significant inability to focus or attend to regular or non-preferred tasks. And the Dear Colleague letter expressly recognizes that that inconsistency and in the ability to hyper-focus under some circumstances does not mean that the difficulties they have under other circumstances are not a basis for eligibility. So it really requires the school to look at the child holistically and take those other things into account. Uh, oops, here we go. Uh, some of you may be aware of a, of a special education or regular education initiative called Response to Intervention that was initially introduced in many places as a way to see whether a child with a learning disability or suspected learning disability could make progress as long as they received more research-based support in regular education, with the idea being that if they did get that progress in regular education, that was evidence that they didn't have a neurological disability. In fact, now, the response to intervention strategies are being used for many kids who are having trouble at school that might be eligible for a special ed IEP or a 504 plan, and the Office for Civil Rights says very, very clearly that the U.S., the, the U.S., the use of RTI programs should not interfere with access to 504 protection. While schools may use response to intervention as a strategy, uh, they should not rigidly adhere to the steps of the intervention process as a predicate for evaluation or categorically require intervention data as part of an evaluation process. So in many places, uh, the response to intervention programs are in effect serving to delay or deny even the ability to get an evaluation for an IEP or an evaluation for 504. And the Dear Colleague letter from the Office of Rights is saying, wrong, wrong, that's just not right. If the child is suspected of having a disability, there's evidence of disability. You can do the intervention, but you have to be moving forward with the evaluation process at the same time. So that's a very, very significant statement. Um, sometimes schools will say, well, you might have a legitimate concern about your child having a disability, but it's either uh, something that requires an outside evaluation, so we're going to leave it to you to go find an evaluator, or we'll even recommend an evaluator, but we're going to leave you to pay for it. And importantly, and this is particularly of concern for families that do not have a lot of money or may live in an uh, urban or rural area where access to qualified evaluators isn't easy or maybe even possible at all, uh, the Dear Colleague letter that makes clear it's the responsibility of the school to make sure that the evaluation happens, including at no cost to the parent, rather than just putting it on the parent and assuming that the school doesn't have to do anything if the parent is, for whatever reason, unable to follow up. So this really clarifies that what we call the child find responsibility, the requirement to identify whether a child has a suspected disability, that's a responsibility of the schools. It is not something that can be shifted to the parent in order for the school to avoid what it needs to do. Also, the uh, very, very significant uh, statement from the Office for Civil Rights is that school districts must avoid making decisions about either evaluation for 504 plans or eligibility 
based on mistaken assumptions based on gender, race, or ethnicity. Uh, examples of gender bias would include uh, that girls may be less likely to display the symptoms of hyperactivity or impulsivity, which are the things that boys who are frequently identified are displaying. Uh, there may be confusion about the fact that the child is quiet and a gender bias may uh, lead a school staff to say, well, girls are quiet, girls should be quiet, and so the girl is just demonstrating appropriate uh, behavior for what we expect of a girl without looking at the possibility that the reason that the girl is uh, not engaged is because of the distractibility or inattentiveness rather than a mistaken gender bias. Similarly, around race and disability, uh, schools cannot say, well, we assume that kids who have more behavior are behavior disordered or emotionally disturbed or just have behavior problems because they're not controlling themselves. They have to use uh, the appropriate criteria for screening and evaluation for all kids, regardless of race, ethnicity, economic status, or whatever. And if a kid is displaying behaviors that may be symptomatic of ADHD, they should be eligible for referral, evaluation, and eligibility. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that if a medical evaluation is required, the school must pay for it, though so it's important to note that the Dear Colleague letter does not require medical evaluations. It gives the school district an option to require it. All that the Dear Colleague letter and the Office for Civil Rights have said is that you have to use people who are qualified to diagnose ADHD. That could be a physician. It could be a psychologist. It could even conceivably be a nurse practitioner or a clinical social worker if they have specialized training in assessing ADHD. Uh, my own view is that a a good evaluation of ADHD should include both medical and psychological evaluation, but the key point here is that the school must determine what the criteria are and then has to assure that it's at no cost to the parent. In fact, what sometimes happens is that schools will say get a medical evaluation and the parent will go to a family practitioner or pediatrician who may not be all that knowledgeable about ADHD, get a quick diagnosis without a more comprehensive evaluation and come back to school, and then everyone's stuck with that evaluation and diagnosis, whether or not it was done using the appropriate evaluation procedure. So it's not a good idea for the kid nor for the school to defer to just a superficial but cheap evaluation process. Uh, then, uh, this is a reiteration of what I said earlier on, that the Dear Colleague letter is very, very explicit in saying 504 services are not limited to and should not be limited to free or low-cost services that the district can provide, such as extra time on tests, extra time in turning in the homework, preferential seating, or quiet room for a test. They are required to provide instructional services and related services if those are necessary for a child to have uh, uh, an appropriate education under Section 504. So this really make this is not new, but it makes clear something that many schools and parents didn't understand in the past: that 504 is not just an accommodations law; it can be a services and support and instruction law as well. For kids who have executive functioning problems, they may need instructional assistance to help them to learn how to organize their time and materials. For a student has social skills problems, they may learn. Uh, need support in developing appropriate social skills. For a student who has time uh, difficulty with uh, maintaining attention, they may need help with strategies as well as just time, uh, environmental accommodations for how they can 
more effectively maintain attention. For a student who has uh, impulsivity and behavior problems, they may need some help with how to manage their behavior in order to be able to interact more appropriately with peers and adults. So these are things that go beyond what 504 plans have traditionally been understood to provide in the past. I've already talked about the manifestation determination briefly uh, at the beginning, so I just want to review that under 504, if a child gets into trouble that may lead to suspension in excess of 10 school days or expulsion, the school must uh, conduct a manifestation conference to determine if the behavior is directly related to disability. Now, to be clear, that's not something that was specifically referenced in the Dear Colleague letter. It didn't really address the issue of uh, discipline at all, but it clearly does address the issue of how a child's ADHD impacts their behavior and the need to provide positive behavioral intervention and support. Under the IDEA, the criteria now require for the manifestation of determination that the uh, behavior directly caused the disability, is directly caused by the disability rather, or that the school failed to implement the uh, IEP appropriately. All of this uh, can lead to uh, the school having to make a decision about whether they're going to exclude the kid from school or not, and under both laws, if the behavior is related, they cannot suspend for more than 10 days or expel. In general, there are advantages to both laws, IEP uh, services are uh, hard, harder to obtain uh, than 504 services are, but once you have an IEP, there is a more stringent evaluation process. There's a broader continuum of services in most places than there is under 504. In other words, there's an entire service system of special educators set up under the IDEA, so it's easier to get services, though those may be required under 504. There is a much more specific uh, procedural safeguards provision in the IDEA and there's more accountability and there are more specific and rigorous due process safeguards under IDEA than there is under 504. On the other hand, it's easier to get a 504 plan, it's faster to get a 504 plan, there's much more weight given to outside evaluations for the purposes of establishing an impairment under 504 than there is under IDEA. The rules are less cumbersome, so that's a, a disadvantage in the sense that there's less accountability, but it's an advantage in the sense that there's more flexibility. Uh, and in my experience, uh, being identified as eligible for a 504 plan is less stigmatizing than having a disability label under the special ed system. So uh, it's not that there's always one type of uh, protection that's better for one child versus another, but Remember, if you can't get IDEA eligibility, you may be more able to get 504 protection. Uh, if you only need more limited support, 504 may be a good solution. Uh, the one big caution that I would make to people is that if the child is having behavioral problems that put them at risk for longer-term suspension or expulsion, it's generally going to be uh, safer and better to have an IEP than a 504 plan because the procedural safeguards are present in both but they're more detailed and more rigorous under IDEA than they are under 504. Okay, these are just some resources that are available online for people to use, uh, other additional resources. And then finally, people who want to really delve into these issues in depth can uh, purchase a copy of my book, which was published in 2009. You can order that through calling my office or on our website, uh, Guide to Special Education Advocacy, What Parents, Advocates, and Clinicians Need to Know. And if people are interested in contacting me, they can do so by email. My email address is mdc 
That's for Matthew David Cohen, mdcspedlaw at gmail.com, mdcspedlaw at gmail.com. Uh, now I'd be happy to open it up to questions. So we have a couple of common situations that I believe people are asking about. So one is we have a parent who has a child with um, ADHD as well as a number of other coexisting conditions, and she performs at or above her peers academically, and the school is saying she's not eligible for a 504 plan. Um, could you elaborate on that? Is Is performing above... Um, their peers and, and academically, is, is, is that a reason to say um, they're not eligible? Uh, I'm, I'm bringing the slides back to slide number six and slide um, number three. Uh, those are both relevant. The short answer is that just because you're doing well does not mean that you're not eligible. If you can show either that the ADHD is adversely or substantially affecting the child in other elements of their school life, like they're socially isolated, they're having behavioral problems, they uh, may be getting good grades, but they're having to work five times harder to get the good grades than anyone else. So the fact of academic success or progress is a variable to be considered, but it's not by itself an exclusion uh, from consideration if there are other aspects of the child's functioning that are interfering or limiting their functioning at school. And remember what I said about the presumption of eligibility, uh, based on the, the new ADA rules in the Dear Colleague letter, there should be a presumption of eligibility unless the school can prove otherwise. And so that really means that the weight is on them. And, and then if they say, well, kids doing fine in academics, you can say, yeah, but what about the other life activities at school? Thinking, socializing, uh, participating, being organized, being on time, uh, all of those executive functioning skills are life skills. So if they're showing up at school as a problem despite the good grades, then it's a basis for eligibility. Okay, great. Thank you. And so to clarify that presumption of eligibility, we did have a question. So someone was asking, if you have that diagnosis of ADHD, it should it make it it should make it easier for them to get an evaluation under Section 504? Absolutely, because you're walking in already with an identified physical or mental impairment that's been privately identified. Uh, whether it's substantially limiting school remains a question, so you have to be able to show that. But that's why if you're getting a private evaluation, it's very helpful, if not critical, that that outside evaluation include data from school about how the child is doing so that there is evidence of, of uh, substantial limitation at school. Great, thank you. Um, we have a couple of questions about people asking about executive functioning and ADHD and accommodations um, regarding that. Do you have any suggestions for parents? Um, we have a couple of situations where they're saying the schools are telling them they don't have programs to help with executive functioning, they don't offer executive functioning coaching, so how could you advocate with regards to that? Well, the first thing to recognizes the point that I just made, which is just because the child is doing okay academically is not a basis to exclude them from help, and that um, the 504 plans are not limited to just accommodation. But one of the things that I think would be important to stress is that accommodations don't teach people things. Accommodations just allow them to get by. So if you give a person extra time on a test or extra time on a homework assignment, that means that you're not penalizing them for their disability, but you're not helping them to develop their own strategies for succeeding despite the disability. 
So that's where more affirmative steps like uh, instructional support, reward systems, and so on become important. And I think that there are, you know, a number of things on Chad's websites and a number of things uh, that are available online uh, that are by experts on executive functioning that describe the various strategies and ways that you can help train someone uh, to be more conscious of how they can help to manage the executive functioning themselves. And to be clear, coaching is not by itself an automatic related service, uh, but the training or support that's necessary to learn how to uh, manage your executive functioning difficulties could be a related service. And in theory, at least, even coaching, one could make that argument, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to go out and assume that you can run to your school district and have them hire executive functioning coaches, because that's probably going to be a tough argument to make, but you should be able to go to the school district and ask them for assistance, training, and support on learning how to manage executive functioning while getting accommodations. So what the goal is to accommodate the student while they're struggling now so that they're not being penalized for their disability while helping them to learn the skills so that they can manage their disability going forward. Okay, great. Thank you. I have a, a question about cost as it regards to devices um, that are maybe part of a 504 plan or um, an IEP plan. So is the school required to pay for those devices if they're part of the plan? Yes. Uh, they're not required to pay for something just because the parent decides it's a good idea and asks for it. But if it's determined that the device is necessary for them to be able to function at school under either an IEP or a 504 plan, the school is responsible for All right. So I have a couple of situations with parents asking about um, scenarios out, outside of school. So one is specifically about riding the bus. Um, can you ask for accommodations so that your child can ride the bus? Uh, if the bus is a, is a publicly operated, you know, a school bus, whether it's, uh, if, if it's a school bus that's made available to everyone, then they should provide accommodations to allow the student to be on the bus. Well, and incidentally, uh, this, this is not so much a 504 plan issue, but I did litigate a case involving a student who had an IEP, uh, who had ADHD and she had to travel across several very dangerous streets in order to get to school. And we argued successfully that it was dangerous for her because of her ADHD to cross the streets. And so we were able to get door-to-door -door transportation for her because of the ADHD, even though that was not something that would be typically provided to a student when they didn't have a mobility problem. Right. Okay. Thank you. So it definitely can be situational, but it, but it could prove to be um, important to your student depending on the situation. Yes. Okay, great. And what about um, school-sponsored after-school activities, such as sports or that sort of thing? Um, we had a specific question about um, medication being handled after school once the nurse is no longer on site. Could a coach or somebody else kind of step, step in as a person to um, be the one to handle medication? Well, uh, the first thing that's important to know is that kids with disabilities have a right to participate in extracurricular activities with support. 
in general, but when that is being requested, it's important that it be written into the IEP or the 504 plan. If someone just shows up to the coach and says, will you do this for me, it's not going to be successful either practically or legally. But if you say to the team, "This is a, we want to do this and we need this support and it's in a 504 plan, then they've got to do it. The only thing about the example you're giving, though, is medication, is that the laws about who can administer medication are state-specific. There's not a national law about that, so you would have to check out uh, what the law would be as to who can administer, and it would get more complicated, but if it has to be a nurse or a senior administrator, then there'd have to be some arrangement made for that person to, to assist. Uh, because there might be a state law that would say that a coach or a teacher could not give the meds. And then even though that was more convenient, that would be a barrier to providing the accommodation. It doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means they have to find a solution that's consistent with state law to allow it to be done. Great. Thank you. Um, we also have some parents who are asking about um, a 504 plan or an IEP is in place, but they're seeing that the accommodations aren't really being carried out in the classrooms by the teachers. Um, how could they address this situation? Sure. Well, it's a, an important question. The first thing is that for a lot of kids under an IEP or a 504 plan, the way that the accommodation is written is says something like uh, the student may access upon request. The student may access extra time. The student may access an extra a quiet room. The student may have extra time on the test, whatever. And many students with ADHD, in fact, many students even who don't, but especially kids with ADHD, may not be able to self-advocate. They may have a level of embarrassment about seeking the help. They may get confused or anxious about seeking the help. And so it's left in their hands, but they're not able to do it. So it's important if the child needs the accommodation that the plan state that it will be done, not that it's an as uh, needed. The other thing that, in my experience, sometimes happens is that it will say at teacher discretion or as needed for the teacher to decide. And again, if it's discretionary, it makes it less likely that it's going to happen. So if you think that an accommodation should be provided, it's important to not have that type of qualifying language. But even given that there's a declarative statement that should be done, sometimes it's not done. Uh, there's no great solution to this because you don't have like a, a monitor in the back of the room every day keeping track of what's actually happening. But when that's a problem, what I try to do is to set up a recording system uh, that actually is done by the staff and sent home where they're supposed to document that the accommodation is being done, and then the parent can review that to see whether it's happening or not, and they're able to complain more quickly and effectively because they've got documentation of what's actually happening. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, we have an interesting question here asking about does state law trump federal law regarding 504 plans? Ah, well, to my knowledge, um, well, the, the basic rule is this. State law cannot trump federal law, whether it's 504 plans or IDEA, unless the state law gives the child more right or more protection. So the state law can never take away a right that's provided by the federal law, but it can add rights. One question is, a bunch are in here, and it's not a little off topic, but it's um, can 504 plans be applied in college? Uh, as long as the college receives federal financial assistance, uh, they do apply in college. Same thing would be true for a school that doesn't receive federal funding. It'd be covered by the ADA unless it's a religiously controlled school. But 
it's important for people to be aware that the 504 plan that your child has in high school doesn't automatically carry over to the high to the college. It's just evidence that the college will use in deciding. Uh, the parent and the student still have to make a specific request for accommodation and get a new plan from the college or university. It's not automatic. Okay, thank you. What about any creative ways to ask a school to provide quiet space for testing and 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 small group spaces? Um, this is coming from someone who's saying the school is saying they don't have available space to give. So, uh, well, that is a practical problem, no question about it. It might be worthwhile for the parent or the person, the professional, to in effect tour the school to try to identify spaces. Uh, sometimes uh, it, it's not workable, but sometimes the hallway can be used as a quiet space if it's done during class time rather than during passing periods. Uh, it, it is uh, hard if there are times when there literally is no space, uh, but under those circumstances, one of the things that I do is look at the nurse's office or the administrator's office as a place that could be used if all else fails. Okay, great, thank you. This question's coming from an education professional, and they're wondering, can a school require a full outside report, um, or should they just accept the school-required 504 certification form as proof um, that a child needs accommodations? Well, a school can require more evidence, whatever the source, but first of all, it has to be done for free, and secondly, if there's a barrier to evaluation, they can't use the barrier. If, if they don't have an independent source, then they have to find a way to provide the information through their own resources. If a school, if a parent brought in a 3 by 5 prescription slip that said ADHD, it would not be unreasonable for the school to say, uh, we'd like to see the records. That's not enough. We'd like to see the records. And what they might have to do is still decide, well, if they can't get enough information from the private doctor, they're still going to treat that as a referral, and they may have to do a new evaluation if they can't get enough information from the private doctor. They can't ignore it, but they can seek more backup. Okay, great. Does all of this apply to DODEA schools as well? The what? Uh, DODEA, the Department of Defense Education System. Uh, actually, Section 503 applies to Department of Defense. There's 503, because 504 applies to, to non-federal programs, uh, it doesn't technically apply, but 503 is, is the analog that does apply to federal, to actual federal agencies, including Department of Defense. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so I think our final question for today, a lot of people are, just asking for more resources. Um, I'm going to click back on that resource slide that you had, but could you, um, of these resources you have listed, any of them um, sort of top ones or the top maybe two? Uh, well, if for people who are interested in doing ADHD-specific stuff, I think the chad.org resource is great. I didn't list it, but there's a resource called understood.org that's got great information these days. And for people who are more interested in doing advocacy or getting advocacy help, uh, COPA.org is an excellent site. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, that is going to wrap up our questions for today. 
So I do want to thank you, Matt, for your insights and suggestions, and thank you to all of our participants for joining us. Thank you. Great. So again, thank you to Matt and to all of you for joining us. This concludes our webcast. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. Want school mornings to be stress-free? Planning the night before can make mornings run more smoothly for you and your child. Place a basket or box by the front door for backpacks, lunch boxes, coats, jackets, and whatever else your child might need to grab on their way out. For more tips to get the school year started right, go to the CHAD website, www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.helpforadhd.org. Dot help and the number four ADHD.org.